Oh, this is a true story about Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. And it was recorded by one of the guys in his inner circle. Um, a guy, his Hebrew name was Yohanan. In English, people call him John. So um, one of these guys in Yeshua's inner circle, one of his closest disciples, wrote these memoirs about the life of the Messiah, some of the miracles he did, some of his teachings and conversations he had with people. And this story is from Yohanan's book, chapter 11, if you ever want to look it up sometime. So the, situa- the, the, the time and the place of this story is, it happened almost 2,000 years ago, but even though it happened so long ago, it's still really relevant because it's about people. And uh, people back then and people today aren't actually that different. We have mostly the same problems. We have a lot of the same interests. And uh, we're all human beings, right? So there's one area where this story is going to be relevant, even though it's a couple thousand years old. I don't know about you, but I really like old stories too. Like, the older the book, the better. I'm getting to the point where I don't even like reading books unless they're at least like 300 years old. Because if a book has like, lasted for 300 years it must have some good stuff in it. Did you notice that? Like all the the trashy pulp fiction um, penny novels from the 1800s, nobody reads them anymore. But like good poets from the 1800s, people read, right? So this is a story that has made it for almost 2,000 years because it's a really good story. Now, this story did not happen in the West. This story happened in the Middle East. It took place in the land of Israel. And here's, here's the, here are like the main people in the story. This is a story about three siblings. A brother and two sisters. Who here has a brother? I've actually got three of those guys. Three of those, three brothers. Who here has a sister? Okay, I, have, I have zero sisters. Okay, so this is a story about three siblings and about one of them that gets really sick. Now, the names of these siblings, the brother, his name was Eleazar. Everybody say Eleazar. It's a Hebrew name. He was named after the second generation priest, like uh, Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. He had four boys. Um, Two of them died prematurely. And then one of the ones that lived was named Eleazar. So this guy was named after him. In um, in English, people often call him Lazarus. Now, he had two sisters. Uh, One of them was named Miriam. She was named after the older sister of Moses, who wrote down the Torah. And... In English, she's often called Mary, right? So you have Eleazar, or Lazarus, Miriam, or Mary, and then the other sister was named Martha. And Martha is actually a very pretty name. It's an Aramaic name, and it means lady. So her name was Lady. She was probably quite a a Martha. She was quite a lady, right? And um, actually, uh, you know, probably her namesake in Western culture, Martha Stewart, like, Martha Stewart's probably, she was, like, really, fa- she's really famous for, um, like, working around the house and home ec and those kinds of things, right? Martha in this story was really like that, too. She was a real busybody. She was always working around the house and, like, helping people. And, you know, if someone came to the door, she'd want to feed them, like, just get them on the table and feed them right away, like that kind of, that kind of person, right? So anyway, um, these, these people, they lived in a town called Beit Anya. Everybody say Beit Anya. It was about, it's like, it was in the burbs of Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem was the capital of Israel 2,000 years ago, and they lived in a town about two miles out, so it was like one of the suburbs. And they had a pretty nice place. It's probable that they were young. They were probably in their teens and 20s, because from what we can see, neither of, the, of all three of them were married. So you probably have like uh, three siblings in their teens or 20s. Uh, they, there's no evidence that their parents were around, so their parents probably had already died. 
So it's probably these three siblings by themselves. They, they inherited a nice big house. They probably inherited quite a bit of wealth. Um, from, from some other stories about them in the Gospels, it looks like they were probably pretty well-to-do, right? So you have these three siblings in their teens or 20s. Uh, they're pretty well-to-do. Their parents are gone. And um, in this story, Eleazar, the brother, gets sick. He gets really sick. And the, the two sisters, they're like, Oh, no. You know, Yeshua, he's healed people. We have, we have seen him with our own eyeballs heal people. Um, we're sure he could help our brother. We've just got to get word to him. Now, here's the thing. Yeshua was hiding out. He was kind of on the run. He was a bit of a fugitive at that point. Uh, this story happened in the winter. You're talking like, uh, I'll give you a couple of events that led up to it. Yeshua was down in Jerusalem for the festival of booths in the fall where like the whole nation would build booths and remember coming out of Egypt and all this stuff. Huge nationwide celebration. And uh, you may remember that he got himself in some hot water, healing a blind guy and then telling him to carry his mat on the Sabbath day, which was like the day of rest when you're not allowed to do stuff like that. So, so some would say, right? So he got himself in quite a bit of hot water because he broke some of the rules of the religious authorities. At that point, they were already thinking, we probably just want to knock this guy off. Uh, he went back up to Jerusalem for Hanukkah which is like uh, in December, January. And uh, he got in more hot water then because he claimed that God was his father and he claimed that he and his father were like this. They were one, right? And at that point, some of the people there freaked out. They said, that's blasphemy. And they started picking up stones and they were just going to start hucking stones at his head and like kill him on the spot, right? Um, It says that he managed to escape them. So probably did some kind of ninja kind of escape move or something and disappeared into the crowd. So anyway, he made it out of there. But at that point, like he was just not he was not popular with some of the the high, like ultra religious people and with the, the 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 religious leadership in Jerusalem. So he didn't go back up to Galilee, his home province. He actually skipped town and he cut east. I'm, I'll show you on a map here, just so you guys can imagine it here. Let's like draw a map. Um, let's say that this is the Mediterranean over here, okay, on the west. And then here you have Galilee up here. That's the province that Yeshua was from. It's kind of like big rolling hills, lots of agriculture, kind of like, uh, kind of redneck. Okay, Galilee was kind of redneck. Then you have Samaritan, Samaria where all like the half-breed Samaritans that everybody hated were. And then you have down here, you have cultured, sophisticated Judea where everybody would go for like, to get an education, religious education, all this stuff, right? And of course, Jerusalem is right in the middle of that. So when Yeshua took off, he didn't go back up to the Galilee. He cut across the Jordan River to the frontiers of the country. If you think Galilee was like redneck, way out here was even more redneck, all right? It was out on the frontiers, little villages, and then it was just solid desert and uh, a lot of dangerous things out there. So he was hanging out in an area that was, um, was called Perea. And um, so the sister said, okay, uh, let's send a messenger to the master. Maybe he'll come. Maybe he'll, he'll heal our brother. And so they sent a message to Yeshua, and this is what it said. Master, the one whom you love, he's sick. That was the message. They never even asked him, would you come and heal him? They just said, Master, the one you love, he's sick. And that tells us a lot about Yeshua's relationship with these guys. What it tells us is um, these three siblings, like he really cared about them. I don't know, like, uh, let me ask you, who, who are your closest friends? If I could say, list your three closest friends, who would they be? And you'll have a couple of people like jump into your mind. And if I asked you that six months from now or 12 months, it would probably be a different set of people because often our best friends depend on where we live and uh, some different factors like that, right? So anyway, um, uh, all of us have some close friends and then we have tons of acquaintances. 
Uh, like on Facebook, for instance. I, I had over 4,300 friends on Facebook. People were at me all over the place because they're interested in what I have to say, and I had a lot of Hebrew students, right? And I was like, this is crazy. I don't even know most of these people. I think I like them, but they're not really my friends. So, you know, like, here's a little example. I just, I abandoned that Facebook account, like the sinking Titanic, and I opened a new Facebook account where my friends are people that are actually my friends in real life, like that I know, and then everybody else can subscribe, right? So it was like that for Yeshua too. He had tons of people that thought he was pretty cool, that uh, were really wowed by some of his miracles. You know, when he would like feed a couple thousand people like for free in a shot, they thought that was pretty fantastic, right? So he had lots of fans, lots of subscribers, you could say, tons of acquaintances, but he didn't have many friends. And uh, what this story tells us, the way they sent this message is, like, these three siblings, they were actually some of his friends. Like, they were like his, his good friends. Like, they didn't have any vested personal interests in their friendship with him. They were pretty well-to-do. They, ha- they didn't really want anything from him. They were just friends, right? So when he, when he made the hike down to Jerusalem, he would stop at their place. Maybe he would stay for a couple nights. He would hang out and talk with them and eat with them and, and catch up, shoot the breeze, that kind of thing, right? So anyway, the sisters send this message and they say, Master, the one you love is sick. And Yeshua says this, This sickness isn't going to end in death. It's not fatal. Rather, this sickness is going to result in God's glory because the Son of God is going to be glorified through it. Now, that was, that was key um, to uh, his hearers because in, in the Jewish mind, there are two kinds of sicknesses. You can read about this like in the Talmud tractate, Kiddushin, for instance. Um, there's sicknesses that end in death, lameta, and then there's sicknesses that end in life. You don't die. And that's, uh, that's called lachaim, right? Those two kinds of sicknesses. So he says this sickness isn't going to end in death. It's just going to end in God's glory. So the messenger probably got the message. He probably took that back to the two sisters. Now, this is where things get a little puzzling. Yeshua really loved these three. He really loved, like, Eleazar and the sisters. But he stayed where he was for another two days. He didn't immediately hoof, hoof it up to Jerusalem to heal him. And then after two days, he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And his disciples, they're like, ah, uh, master, we were just in Judea, and they tried to kill you, like stone you. Are you sure you want to go back there? And uh, he says something about, he says something in the story about, uh, basically, look, it's daytime. If you walk in the daytime, you're not going to get a, you're not going to stumble, get tripped up and stuff, right? If you walk in the nighttime, then you get tripped up. And then he says, our friend Eleazar is sick, and uh, I'm going to uh, wake him up. He said he's sleeping, and I'm going to go wake him up. And uh, the disciples said to him, Master, Master, if he's, if he's sleeping, that's good. It means he's going to get better. You know, you have a good sleep. It means you're on the, on the recovery. And uh, at that point, the storyteller, Yochanan, interjects and he says, Yeshua was talking about Eleazar dying, but uh, they didn't get it. You know how sometimes even in our culture, people will like, talk about them going to sleep or whatever. It's talking about a person dying, but it's like a euphemism or whatever. It was like that. So Yeshua just straight up said, Eleazar is dead. And I'm actually really glad for your sakes that we weren't there so that you'll believe in me. So let's go. At that point, um, definitely was one of the optimists in the group of disciples, Thomas. He says, let's go too so that we can die with him. He's always the optimist, right? Remember Thomas the doubter later on? He's the one who doubts and all this stuff. So he's like, well, let's go and die with him. 
So they, they start making the hike up to Jerusalem. Now, remember our map here? Yeshua is way over here on the eastern frontier. They had to go down out of the hills, cross the Jordan River at Jericho, and then make a 17-kilometer hike up to Jerusalem. So that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good distance. Like you're talking 20, 25 kilometers walking, right? So Yeshua and his guys are walking to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, let's scroll back to Jerusalem and uh, we'll finish the story. So we, we have the three siblings in the burb, burbs and uh, Eleazar dies. He dies. And uh, I want to give you a little glimpse into um, how, how burial customs happened 2,000 years ago and also how, how, they, how they mourned in things. It'll kind of give you a picture of those two sisters and, and what they went through. Um, in, 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 in the ancient Middle East, they would bury a person the same day that he died. So the day that Eleazar died, um, they, as soon as possible, they took him to this cave where people would be buried. And they would actually put the bodies in this cave, they would roll a stone over the entrance to the cave, and then they would leave the body for a year. And the body would decompose, and um, at the end of the year, all you'd have left is the bones. After which, they'd put them in a little box called an ossuary, and they would put the box away in a special storage room of the cave. Uh, they did that because, like, you're in this really rocky area, and it is just no fun trying to hew graves out of rocks. So you kind of use this cave, and you keep cycling uh, cadavers through the cave, right? So anyway, the same day that Eleazar died, they, they took him to the cave, they would have like uh, wrapped his body in um, in like burial clothes called tachrichin, and uh, they would have put a lot of um, sweet-smelling fragrances in there, spices and things. And then they put him in the cave, and they rolled the stone over the mouth of the cave. Um, there were a lot of people that were there to to mourn with uh, with Miriam and with Martha from Jerusalem. And I'll actually I'll read you an ancient prayer that they prayed. It's um the same prayer that Jewish people pray today at a, at, a, at a burial site. And this is actually, um, it's quite certain that this is a prayer that they prayed because it's in Aramaic. Later, later Jewish prayers were written in Hebrew. This one is in Aramaic, which means it's really, really old, right? And uh, I'll read you just the first couple lines in Hebrew, and then I'll read it for you in English. It's, uh, it's called the Kaddish. Everybody say Kaddish. The prayer that they prayed at the tomb of their brother went Yit Kadal Kadash Dihu and then there's a standard version, but this is the one you pray at a burial. It says Dihu Atid Laachdata. If you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, then you're familiar with that kind of sound, right? It's, it's Aramaic. Anyway, this is what this is what a translation of the prayer that they prayed would be. May his great name grow exalted and sanctified in the world which will be renewed, and where he will resuscitate the dead and raise them up to eternal life. That's the, pray, the way that prayer started. Then later on, there's this long list of like praying for God's name, for his reputation. And, uh, and um, I'll, I'll read you just a little bit in, in the uh, Hebrew or Aramaic so you can get a feel for it. It says, It says, and um, the English translation says, uh, Blessed, praised, glorified, exalted, extolled, mighty, upraised, and lauded be the name of the Holy One. Blessed is He. And then the prayer goes on. But anyway, this was a prayer that, uh, that Martha and uh, her sister Miriam prayed at the grave of their brother. And what I really want you to just notice there is two things they prayed. Is They said, um, may God's name be uh, like sanctified. Like hallowed, right? In the world which will be renewed and where he will resuscitate the dead, the dead, right? 
So notice that. There's that theme of like God bringing the dead back to life. And then later in this prayer, it, it says like, may the name of the Holy One be glorified. So just watch for those two themes in the story. It's like two themes from this prayer that they prayed. Just to give you a little bit of, a, a little bit of background there. And then um, there are a couple more things that, that happened in the burial process. I'll just describe them for you so you can kind of get a better glimpse of, a glimpse of it. As, as the sisters were leaving their house to go and see their brother buried, uh, there would have been some people that stayed behind and turned all the furniture upside down and put the beds on the floor because uh, they were going to sit shiva. Uh, sitting shiva is a Jewish custom of burial, like and, and then mourning, where basically you just just unplug from life and uh, you just stop everything and you just grieve for a week, basically uh, intensively. And so after they left, um, they, the, the, basically the, all the furniture was turned upside down, so people would just sit on the floor with them in mourning. Uh, the beds were put on the floor, so if they were gonna lie when they lay down at night, it would just be on the floor. It's kind of a picture of just. Psh- that kind of thing, right? So some people would have done that. Um, it's likely that there was another, there was something that the mourners at the gravesite said to the sisters. Um, don't know if I have that right here. Yeah, let me just look it up. Sorry, one second. I lost my page there. Yeah, at the gravesite, it's probable that the sisters, um, they probably said a Hebrew, a Hebrew prayer. In Hebrew, it says, Baruch uh, Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Dayan HaEmet. means like, Blessed you, Lord our God, King of the universe, the true judge. And then probably before they left, all the, all the mourners would have come by and they would have said, uh, May the omnipresent, that's like referring to God being everywhere, right? May the omnipresent console you among the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. So praying that they would be comforted. A really simple prayer, eh? Um, when the when the two sisters were going home, like crowds of ladies would have followed them. They would have probably stopped seven times on the way back home to just sit down and ball. And uh, that's kind of was a, was a Jewish tradition. And after they got home, they would just sit on the floor, and their friends would stand around them, or maybe sit around them and just uh, just cry with them. And um, if if they needed comfort, then they would give them comfort and speak some comforting words to them and things. Um, now, when the two sisters were getting ready to sit shiva, sitting like just you know shiva is Hebrew for seven, right? Kind of mourning for those seven days. Uh, they wouldn't do any household work, which is probably really hard for Martha, right? Because she's like the busybody who couldn't stop working and stuff around the home, really industrious. But they wouldn't do any didn't do any household work. Uh, they went barefoot, so they didn't wear sandals or shoes. Um, didn't take any like hot baths. They would maybe just sponge bath with cold water, um, and they didn't apply any perfume or makeup, and uh, they didn't greet anybody. They weren't didn't feel obligated to say hello to anybody. So that's 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 what they were doing. That's what they were getting ready for. Was they as they sat shiva, uh, and for those seven days there was like a time of lamentation. So you know they would just talk about their brother a lot and and say remember when this and remember when that and he was such a great guy and we're going to miss him so much and, and and the kinds of things that a person would would say as they're working through a grieving process and lamenting right and of course their friends would say similar things and um, for the first three days specifically in the Jewish tradition that would be a time of, that was a time of weeping so that's like that would just they would just bawl a lot right they would just and their friends would encourage them just get it out just let it out cry all you need to cry you know so for the first three days get that they were just bawling their eyes out for their brother, um, spending a lot of time crying and talking about him and missing him and lamenting. Uh, for the first three days, there was also 
There were a couple instances in ancient Israel where they would take the, the person that, ha, that had died or that they thought had died and put him in the grave and then realize that he wasn't dead. Maybe someone would come to the grave the next day to cry and they'd hear the guy like screaming from inside, right? And they'd let him out. That happened to a couple people. That's one of the dangers of like putting someone in the grave as soon as they die the same day, right? So anyway, um, what, what, they would, what they did in ancient Israel is um, for, the, for the three days after they were buried, they would go every day and make sure the person was dead. They would check to make sure the person was dead, right? It was kind of this, this Jewish, I think it was a bit superstitious, but there was this notion that after the person's spirit left their body, their spirit kind of hung around their body, kind of hovered around the sepulchral curve for three days, and maybe wanting to get back in. And then, you know, the face begins to deform from uh, decomposition, and then the spirit's like, hey, I'm out of here, and the spirit takes off. So anyway, there was this notion that there would be maybe the occasional time with within the first three days, someone might resuscitate or come back to life. Right, and so they would go to the tomb for the first three days just to make sure he was didn't come back to life or something. And there was also the three days where they would they would cry a lot. There actually, there were two specific stories. Uh, one about a guy who came back to life, and uh, he actually went on to live another twenty five years. And then another guy who came back to life, or you know, who didn't really die in the first place, maybe wasn't clinically dead or something, and uh, he actually went on to have more children. So that would be kind of kind of neat. So anyway. That's, that's kind of like a, that's a glimpse of uh, how Eleazar was buried and the way his sisters are mourning for him. Now, you may remember Yeshua and his guys are making the hike from way over here, kind of from, from hiding out in the hills, and they're, they're making the hike to Jerusalem. So they get to this, this uh, suburb of Jerusalem, and Eleazar's already been dead for four days. Right? Not three days. So, you know, for the first three days, the sisters were just bawling and crying a lot, and they were going to the tomb every day to make sure the guy was dead. On the fourth day, the, the rabbi shows up with his disciples. And um, Martha came out to, to meet him. And she said, Master, if, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But you know, even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he'll do it for you. And Yeshua said to her, Your brother is going to rise again. And she said, I know he'll rise again on the last day at the resurrection. And Yeshua said to her, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. And then he said to her, if anyone believes in me, that person will never die. Anyone who, believe, who lives in me, anyone who believes in me, will never die. Do you believe this? He said to Martha and she said, yes, master. I believe that you're the Messiah. You're the son of God, the one who is coming into the world. And then she went back to, uh, to the house where Miriam was. And apparently Miriam, the other sister, didn't know that the master had come. And so um, she said, she took her aside. You know, Miriam was sitting there on the floor with all of her friends around her. So Martha took her aside and said, oh, Miriam, the, the rabbi's here, the teacher's here, and he's calling for you. And so Miriam just jumped up and she hurriedly ran out to see Yeshua. And all of her friends said, oh, she's probably going to the tomb tomorrow. And so they followed along, right? And um, Miriam went to Yeshua. And when she saw Yeshua, she just just collapsed and fell on her face in front of him and said, Master, if you'd been here, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And uh, it's very, at that point, the storyteller, Yochanan, he gives very sparse details. He just says, when Yeshua saw Miriam crying and he saw all of the other, all of her friends crying, he says he was really, like, deeply moved inside. And it's kind of, it's kind of hard to get the exact sense of the word because, like, it's actually the word for being angry. Like, something happened inside of him where he got he got mad about something, or he, 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 was, he felt anger about something. And it said that he got really troubled. 
And I don't think he was angry at those people. Maybe he was, my, I, my suspicion was he was angry at death. He was angry at the whole situation. Anyway, so, it's a, so he asked them, and he said, where, where, did, where is he buried? And they said, come and see, Master. So they went to the grave, and at that point it says, Yeshua wept. Like he just started bawling. And when the Jewish people there, when they, when they saw him, they said, wow, look how much he loved him. You know, he's, he's really crying. He must have really loved him. Some of the other people said, this is the guy who healed, the, healed this blind guy. This guy was born blind. Couldn't he have kept his friend from dying? So anyway, Yeshua goes to the grave and he says, roll the stone away from the grave. And Martha says, Master, Master, he's been dead for four days. By this time, he stinks. And Yeshua said to Martha, Martha, didn't I say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? And so they did it. They probably held their noses and they rolled the stone away from the, away from the grave. And uh, Yeshua, he said, it says he lifted up his eyes to, to heaven. To this, he lift, lifted his eyes like, up to the sky. And he said, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying this for the sake of the people around me so that they'll believe that you sent me. Then he looked down and he looked at the grave and he said, Elazar, he shouted, it says, he said, Elazar, come out! And Elazar came out of the grave with like his body wrapped in all these spices and the burial clothes uh, with this uh, like napkin handkerchief thing on his face. And uh, at that point, the storyteller gives some very brief details. He just says that Yeshua said, untie him and let him go. Like I can only imagine as Elazar came out of the grave after being dead for four days, like half the people there probably peed their pants on the spot. (laughs) I mean, seriously, like, if you see a guy who was dead for four days come alive, you would totally freak out. Like, your hair would all stand on end. You would probably, like, stop. You'd feel aghast. And then you'd probably scream or something. And who knows? Um, I, I, I'm assuming they were all probably just freaking out, which is why Yeshua had to give such practical instructions. Like, there's the guy standing there, like, all tied up. And he has to be like, hey, guys, like, untie him and let, let him go, you know? So the, the story ends by saying some of the people there snitched. Some of the people went to the religious authorities in Jerusalem and said, he just raised a guy from the dead who's been dead for four days. And uh, so they, they convened this like damage control um, council of the Sanhedrin, which was like the, uh, it would be like the, the, what the, like the governing body of Israel, right? So they all got together and they said, what are we going to do? This guy is doing legitimate miracles. If we let him keep doing miracles like this, Everybody is going to believe in him. The whole nation is going to start following him. And the Romans are going to come in and they're going to wipe out our country and they're going to destroy the temple. Now the high priest that year was named Caiaphas. Um, in, in English he's called Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, it says, said, you guys don't know anything. Don't you understand? It's, it's better that one man die for the nation than that the whole nation die. In other words, let's just kill this guy so the rest of us can survive. So at that point... Um, they, the, the whole like religious leadership of the nation became dead set against him and they said, this guy's got to go or everybody's going to start following him. So that's the story. Um, here, I'll just ask you a couple of questions uh, uh, about this story and we can think about it a little bit together. Um, there are several, there are several like, key figures in this story and they had experiences, they had feelings. Is there anyone in this story that you can particularly relate to? Uh, maybe you can relate to having a sibling that you really care about or a loved one that gets that get sick, maybe really sick. I think most of us have probably had loved ones that were sick and that died. And um, 
you know, you, you look at the story about Miriam and Martha, and they're, and they're saying, if only, if only this had happened, I would still have my sibling. Right? Um, there's some other people in the story. You have uh, Yeshua's disciples, and they were like, Master, you cannot go there. That is dangerous. Like, playing, conser- playing it conservative, right? You have Thomas, who's like, seems to be always depressed, or definitely the pessimist in the group, saying like, well, we might as well go and die with him. You know, always the pessimist in the group. Um, later on, you have some of the crowd. Some of the crowd was like, wow, Yeshua is a real guy. Like, look at how he loves his friend. He's really crying. He's really losing it here. So even though, you know, he was a great public figure, even though many people viewed him as the son of God, they were also like, wow, Jesus is a real guy. And he has real feelings. Um, there, were other, there, were, there were skeptics in the crowd too, right? Who said, like, couldn't he have kept this guy from dying? I mean, this guy's done other miracles. He's healed people, right? And, you know, that's, that's very true today. Um, some of us can relate to, like, um, disappointment. Some of us can relate to skepticism. Uh, some of us can relate to, like, the human side of the Messiah, right? They're all, they're all these different people. Um, maybe some of us can relate to Eleazar. Um, maybe some of us have had times where, like, emotionally we just felt sick inside. Or mentally we felt, like, sick. I have had times like that. Like, maybe you've had a day or a week or a month where you just feel gross. And you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. And you just, you can feel it. You can feel, like, like your soul life seeping out of you. You know, or maybe if you've been in a relationship that was just a really bad relationship and it just sucks the life out of you. And it's just, it's sickening. You know, I, I think we can all relate to, maybe to Eleazar, like just sickness. It's, it's something that all of us as human beings feel. Um, maybe some of us have even been able to say, yeah, I can relate to dying. I mean, I, maybe I haven't physically died. I'm guessing mo- n- none of us have ever physically died of an illness. But uh, maybe some of us have felt something in our souls die as a result, let's say, of a failed relationship or a people that let us down or uh, sometimes you just get jaded with life. You know, you see suffering in the world. I've wrestled with that. I've had times where I've, you know, let, okay, let's just say, you watch a documentary of the Holocaust or you read history of it. It's really hard to think about the Holocaust and not to feel something in your soul die. Just as you ask, like, how could people be so evil? How could people be so cruel to each other? You know, how could people be so messed up? Um, so quite frankly, I think everybody um, in the city, everybody that we encounter has something deep down inside of them that died at some point. So I think when it comes to this story, this is a story about all of us and how all of us have faced sickness, all of us have faced death. And then um, maybe we could also ask, like, you know, ongoingly, what does this story tell us about people? You know, you, you, see, uh, you definitely see uh, people in the story who, um, who have needs, like the two sisters, and who, who they cry out for help. You know, they send a messenger to the master. And what happens? He doesn't come. You know, and, and the way they both say the same thing to him as soon as they see him, it tells us it's probably something they said over and over to him, uh, to each other during those first three or four days before Yeshua showed up. They probably said, you know, if only he had been here, if only he had arrived, it would have been okay, he could have healed him, you know. Uh, I think we all have things like that, where we just say the same thing to ourselves over and over in our minds, you know. And you know what, sometimes the tracks that we, the mental tracks that we get in are good and true, sometimes they're not true. Sometimes they mess us up. You know, have you, ever, have you ever seen someone and they just say the same thing every single time you see them? And it's just like, no matter what you say, you cannot get through to them because they're just stuck in this mental rut? I don't know. Um, that's, that's something that this story tells us. Often, often that can happen with us, whether it's, whether it's true or not. And then maybe we could also ask, what does this story tell us about Yeshua of Nazareth? Um, one thing it tells us is Yeshua had ESP, like, I really believe that he had extrasensory per- perception. 
uh, like maybe a sixth sense. Um, I, you know, from my, my perspective would just be he was really tight with God and God would let him in on knowledge because he, um, he told his disciples when they were still across the frontier that this guy was dead. He said, Eleazar is dead and I'm glad, that, I'm glad that we weren't there so that you'll believe. So let's go to him, right? So when Yeshua was heading over there, he wasn't going, heading over there like hustling along to make sure they got there in time so that he could help him. He knew very clearly, this guy is dead and we are going there to raise him from the dead to glorify God and also so that God's son can receive some glory from that situation also. And you know, the, 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 story, um, the story concludes by saying a lot, of, uh, a lot of people in the Jerusalem area and in the, in the Jerusalem suburbs, they did come to believe in Yeshua as the Messiah as a result of this miracle. Now, um, I think there, there are definitely people would say, nah, no, like, really? Like, people don't get raised from the dead. That's just physically impossible. That's against the laws of nature, uh, right? Uh, an example would be a Baruch Spinoza, who was a famous Jewish philosopher from the 1600s. He, he, was, he, was, he was a very strong skeptic, right? And he said, if this story about Lazarus is true, then I will go and I will tear up all of my philosophies and I will become a Christian. That's what he said, right? And so it's like one of those things where, yeah, it's, it, it, he had a very good point. You know, if Yeshua actually raised somebody from the dead, there's, um, you've got to give that guy some credit. Maybe there's something to him, hey? Um, I, I personally believe that this was a, a true story, that it was an account that happened for a couple of reasons. When you, when, you, when you read how we got the Gospel of John, the memoirs of Yohanan, um, they, they found copies of them from the 200s, like within uh, 70 to 100 years after Yeshua uh, you know, did his thing. And um, they're exactly the way we have them today. So what that tells us is this, th- these aren't manuscripts that were tampered with by, let's say, the Catholic Church in the 3 and 400s, you know. Some people sometimes say, well, you know what, whatever it is they wrote 2,000 years ago, they got tampered with in the 3 400s by the Catholic Church and uh, people with an agenda, and we don't have it today. But actually, you know, archaeologically, that's just been proven not to be true. Um, maybe some people would say, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, he just wrote that down and nobody, uh, nobody really believed that. He just kind of made this stuff up. But actually, I don't believe that's true either. This is very interesting. You know how a lot of Jewish people uh, 2,000 years ago didn't believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. Like the religious leadership, uh, many of them rejected him. And uh, you read the Jewish texts that were written for the next several hundred years. And there was a lot of arguing going back and forth. You know, Jewish people who didn't believe in Yeshua, they had their reasons and they had their arguments, and you'd call that polemics, right? And then Jewish people who believed in Yeshua, they had their reasons and your arguments. And when you listen into the conversation, one of the things that never comes up is you never hear the skeptics saying, he never did miracles. Jewish people 2,000 years ago, even who rejected the messianic claims of, Messiah, of Yeshua, they acknowledged, yes, he did miracles. He, he, did, he did legit miracles. He, he cleansed guys who were lepers when no one previously was capable of doing that. He, he, he healed blind people. Uh, he did legit miracles. And uh, he even raised people from the dead. Like, in the Jewish world 2,000 years ago, that was undisputed. The big question was, what do we do with this guy and with what he did, right? And because he so didn't fit some people's a like box because he so didn't match people's expectations and because um, he broke a lot of like he broke some of the rules of the religious leaders he didn't play their game he didn't kowtow to them uh, you know a lot of them just said let's just kill him and try and be done with this thing so anyway you know those, those are that's a that's a little overview of why I personally believe this actually happened that this was a historical event um, if that's true you know what, are, what, would, what would the ramifications of that be um, I think deep down inside of us, we all know that we weren't meant to die. 
Like, yes, uh, there, there are the laws of entropy and our bodies slowly get older, we get wrinkles and everything starts to sag. And then usually after 70 or 80 years, you expire and they put you six feet under, right? But deep down inside of us, we all like have this dream that no, like that's not originally the way it was meant to be. Like, especially like, if you ever seen two people really in love? Like they, they really believe that they're going to like live forever together. And I, some people, maybe people would say, yeah, that's just silly. Like that's just... That's the silliness of romance or whatever, but I don't think so. Like, quite frankly, I think love is the, the, real, the realest reality that's out there. I think romance isn't just some, like, uh, something that happens in people's brains or some kind of chemical reaction. I think romance is one of the highest realities. And quite frankly, like, I think when two people are really in love and they're like, I want to live with you forever, I want to enjoy eternity together, I think, I think they're sensing something of, like, the ultimate reality of what we were really, what was really made to be. And so, you know, like, in... Um, you know, Yeshua, he, he taught very clearly that there is going to be a time when God brings the dead back to life. You know, so when, when you die, when, you go, when they put you six feet under, that's your body. But that's not the real you. You are still around. You still exist. You still are conscious. And uh, he's going to bring it back. You know, that's, that's something that Yeshua taught. And Yeshua taught that whether it's physical death or whether you're just dealing with somebody on your block who's just totally conked out emotionally or went through tough stuff and they're dead inside, Yeshua says, I'm the life. Like, I want to come and I want to bring you life. You know, when you come in contact with me, I will bring life to your heart. I'll breathe new life into who you are. And I mean, I, I've experienced that, you know. Like, I've, I've had times in my life where I've had really tough things happen emotionally. I've been in some really harsh relationships. And, it's, 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 and, and I mean, I, I've read enough history to really see the ugly side of humanity. Right? And it's just, it's killed me. Like, it's really killed me. I've had times when I just felt so empty and I just thought, you know, if this is life, I'd, I'd, I'd rather just commit suicide and end it. Because this, this is a real letdown. And, and, and like, in, in my personal experience, in my story, it's been, it's been meeting Yeshua, um, studying His teachings, seeing what He's all about. It's made a difference for me that's kind of brought, like, real life to my heart that's given me hope. So, you know, I, I can say for myself personally that Yeshua has made all the difference, that he's like, he's my life, you know. I really believe in him for the resurrection. And uh, that's, a, that's a powerful hope that I, I think we share. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.